Hey, welcome back. I'm Ashley, your hostess for The Sharp End. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Mammut is a Swiss company specializing in mountain sports since 1862. A premium manufacturer of technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, and alpine equipment, this company embodies Swiss technology and its products are distinguished by having the highest quality, functionality, and safety. Mammut, absolute alpine. Thank you to Vertical Medicine Resources and the Colorado Outward Bound School for being contributing sponsors of The Sharp End. So before we jump into this month's episode, here's an important clarification on our last episode, which took place in the Tetons. Dr. Ashley Weissman from Seattle, Washington sent me this email. Dear Ashley, thanks for putting together this first of its kind podcast. I just wanted to clarify one point about head injuries and concussions to avoid confusion or misdiagnosis. One of the guests on your last episode, number 19, The Grand Traverse Gone Bad, mentioned a white powder in his ears after falling and then later hearing this may be a sign of a concussion. Well, this is not accurate. Symptoms of concussion can include ringing in your ears or trouble hearing, as well as nausea, headache, blurry vision, fatigue, trouble concentrating, and disorientation. If someone sees something in the ear of a patient with head trauma, in particular blood or clear fluid, including dried blood or dried clear fluid, which can look like powder, this is a much more concerning sign of a fractured skull at the temporal bone, which is the part of the skull near the ears, and possible bleeding in the brain. In this case, the clear fluid is cerebral spine fluid, the fluid that surrounds your brain and spinal cord. This should prompt emergency descent and evaluation at a hospital. If the patient is able to descend on their own power, their partner should closely monitor them throughout the exit of the mountains. Keep asking them questions. Keep checking their knots. Watch their gait. If they become more confused, combative, sleepy, or unable to walk any longer, call search and rescue or 911. Lay them down with their head elevated at 45 degrees and await help. Thank you so much, Dr. Weissman, for writing in. I love getting emails. Now, take yourself to the state of Colorado. Go just south of Boulder into El Dorado Canyon. June 26, 2010. My guest this episode was involved in a very scary accident that day, and I'll let him introduce himself. All right. Well, my name's Bill Wright. And I live in Superior, Colorado. And I'm a longtime climber, got into climbing when I went to CU in Boulder as an 18-year-old. My, my grandparents had given me a subscription to National Geographic, and one issue when I was 16 had, a, had climbers on Half Dome on the cover. I think it was a Gallon Rowell uh, photo. And that got me interested in climbing. And when I learned that Boulder is one of the main climbing places, when I went up there, I decided I was going to learn how to climb and bought myself a rope and a harness but I, and uh, got into climbing. I got this book, 50 Classic Climbs in North America, along with a lot of other people. And in the introduction to that book, it, it said, this is an old book, it said at the time, no one had climbed even half of these routes. No one person had climbed half of those routes. And so that was sort of my goal to, to get half of those routes. And 
experience a wide range of climbing, you know, from pure rock climbing to mountaineering type things and, and to travel around, go new places, go, go get into spectacular positions. I mean, that's what, that's really my big drive for climbing was getting to spectacular positions and having an adventure. Can you, uh, tell me what happened in Eldo? Sure. Um, I've always, I always like to challenge myself and endurance is one of my, I'm probably, I'm better at endurance than I am at any, any climbing hard or anything like that. And so I made up, I originally did a, a day in Eldo where we climbed 40 pitches. I climbed 40 pitches with two different partners. I climbed with one partner in the morning and another partner in the afternoon. And that was cool. And then a number of years later, another friend of mine wanted to do the challenge again, and we set a goal for 50 pitches. And we did 50 pitches in Eldo. And then the logical next step was to try to do 100 pitches in one day. Um, and in order to do that, we had to, you know, set some guidelines of what we were going to do. Um, and so most of the, almost every route we did was five, nine and easier. And that's just cause that was the level that, that we were comfortable simul climbing. And that was another key thing is to get that many pitches, we simul climbed every route so a quick explanation here, um, simul climbing is when both climbers on a rope are moving together without belaying with the rope clipped to several pieces of protection between them. This allows them to combine pitches and cover a lot of ground quickly. And the idea is that if either climber falls, the rope will catch both of them. But there is still a very good chance that if one climber falls, the other will fall too. And the leader is especially vulnerable to taking a very long fall. That's simul climbing in a nutshell. Back to Bill. Um, before 8 a.m., we were doing a route called the Red Guard route. It's 7 pitch, 5 8. And my partner, Tom, was leading it. And we were, I think, on the fourth pitch. And the, the, this pitch was like uh, 5 6 or something like that. And in order to do a 7 pitch route as a single pitch without a gigantic rack um you have to space out the gear quite a bit and we'd space out the gear radically so on on easy ground you know five 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 six five seven um and then put in more gear when it got to be you know five eight and five nine and so he was about 50 feet above his last piece when i didn't know this at the time but i went back and climbed the route and think i know what happened although nobody was up there to know for sure um but I think that a hold broke on him, and he came flying down the route. And it was quite a terrifying experience in that I'm simul climbing up this crack. So we have a 100-foot rope tying us t together. And we have, at this point, I think, two pieces of gear in, in the rock. On the fourth uh, pitch. Yeah, on the fourth pitch, yep. So I think there's a number three Camelot and there's a number two Camelot up above. And I hear a, a yell, a scream, um, and look up and I see Tom flying through the air, uh, head down. And I 
just thought, oh my God, we're dead. I mean, that was the first thing that entered my mind. We're dead. And then I looked up and saw the next piece that was 20 feet above me and knew that I would be heading right up to that piece momentarily. And sure enough, as soon as the rope came tight, when he had fallen, you know, 50 feet below the number two Camelot that caught, uh, caught him, I went shooting up to that next piece. I didn't, I got right up to the piece, but didn't hit it or anything. Like it didn't jerk the piece up or anything like that. Um, and that of course finally stopped his fall, my counterweight. And so then we're both hanging from this number two Camelot. You both are hanging from one piece. Yes. There is another piece in the, ro- in the clip to the rope, but it's the rope slack on that. Yeah. We're both hanging from a single number two Camelot. Does, does Tom weigh about the same as you? Yes. Yeah. We're both about 165 to 170. Okay. That helps. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Of course, by the time the rope came tight on him, he had fallen over a hundred feet free fall. Yeah. We, I, I estimate the total fall to be between 130 and 140 feet before he stopped. And he actually stopped about five feet above a ledge that would have definitely killed him. Um, but he didn't fall unscathed. This, this route is pretty steep, but it's not vertical. Um, and so, but it, so he did hit the wall. I'm not sure how many times he hit it when he, when I looked up, he was falling through the air and he went by me through the air, but he definitely hit the wall below because I mean, his helmet was totally cracked and, he was unconscious, at least momentarily. I mean, actually, probably longer than that. It was, it was minutes before I got a response out of him, and then, and then nothing coherent. But I could hear him. I knew he wasn't dead. Oh, I could not see him. Okay, so you can hear him. You can't see him. He's not really speaking language. Um, right. And you're both hanging from a number two Camelot, four pitches above the ground. Yep. All right. So now what happens? Well, you know, we only have a hundred feet of rope and I got one guy hanging on my harness. We're both counterweighted on this number two Camelot. So I, I knew pretty much immediately there's no way in hell we're getting out of this by ourselves. And so I immediately started yelling help. I mean, what else is there to do? I'm just yelling help for all I'm worth. And it's like it's still pretty early in the morning, and I even forget if this was. I think we did it on a weekday because we wanted to do so many classic routes, and we were, we wanted to have less crowds. Because um, so the canyon wasn't there wasn't hardly anybody in the canyon still. I think it was seven thirty. We probably started climbing at four thirty in the morning, um, but there was a runner in there. Thank goodness, and I could see the runner, and I'm yelling really you know, real loud. And I can see that the, the person has heard me. Um, and so I, I know that they're going to go start things. Um, but I don't like hanging from this one cam much, even though it held me and I'm sure I could have hung there till they came, but I didn't like that situation. So I actually started, Oh, actually, actually I said that Tom ended up five feet above a ledge um, that is true, but not at the end of his fall, because once once I knew that person was 
had heard me, I, I started climbing up the crack. Um, but I, I, I leapfrogged the, the, the couple of pieces I had um, so that we always had some gear in there. I, was, I didn't want to be on that one blue Camelot. And so I worked my way up the crack, putting in gear. When I could, there was, there was one section near the top where it was too wide, and I couldn't get a piece in to get to the number two Camelot. So I put some long slings on my last piece, so at least I have two things in there, um, and, and was able to get up to the number two Camelot. And then I put in a couple more pieces and equalized them and everything like that so that at least now we have a we have more gear on the wall. Like I say, the number two wouldn't have pulled, but but I had to do I wanted to do something and and didn't feel that was a good situation just to stay hanging there on that one piece. So by the time I got up to the number two Camelot, which was probably because like I say, he was he was fifty roughly fifty feet above it. I went up 20 feet, probably 30 feet, maybe 25 feet of climbing, got me up to the number two Camelot. Um, at that point, you know, as I'm climbing up, Tom's obviously going down because we're tied together. Um, at that point, when I got up there, he was just above that ledge. Unfortunately, not at this point, unfortunately, not on the ledge. Yeah. And then I sort of just, just sat up there. I, um, in retrospect, I could have, and maybe I should have, because uh, I, I was able to escape. I, I used some prussics on the rope, just some slings wrapped around there to escape the belay um, so that I wasn't tied into the rope anymore. I was clipped into the belay with slings. Um, at that point, I could have used some slings. All we have is slings with us, no, no real prussic loops, just, you know, when... You know, those really thin uh, slings. Like the runners? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just thin runners, yep. Um, I could have used a couple of those and tried to down Prusik to him 100 feet down this rope. Uh, But, you know, the rope's lying tight against the rock. Um, I don't know what I'd do when I got there. But I do do think that I, I, in retrospect, that I should have done something like that, but mm-hmm. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have been sort of dicey, and I didn't want to make the situation worse. But if he was down there bleeding to death or something like that, he would have died. So, right. Well, what did you do then? So you're just you're just hanging hanging out up there and hoping that that runner yeah. that you saw and you hollered to went out yep. to get help. Yeah. Actually, when I got up there, you came out. There was a little bit of a stance there. So I didn't have to hang in my harness the whole time. And so I didn't do anything. I just sat there. You know, if I ever saw anybody, I'd start yelling help again just to be 100% sure something was, somebody was coming. But they were coming, and it wasn't that long before people appeared in the canyon. How long do you think it was? The police originally were the first ones there. It was less than an hour probably before somebody got to the bottom of the canyon. Um, and they had a terrible PA system. Half an hour later, maybe or maybe less than that. I don't. I don't know. The, I don't remember the exact time. Uh, Rocky Mountain Rescue showed up, and they had a great PA system. But it was a very confusing situation for them on the ground. They knew that we needed help and that, that a climber was injured. But it's not normal 
to see the injured climber a hundred feet below the other one. Right. They thought I was the injured one. I mean, originally it was, it's just very confusing because what we were doing was not normal. Um, but they, they could yell up, uh, yes or no questions to me. And I forget what I did, but I could respond either by waving or not waving or something like that. But they knew it was a serious situation and they, you know, got a vertical evac going where they have to hike up to the very top of the cliff, which is like a 700 foot cliff, um, put in anchors and, you know, 700 foot ropes. They have all this stuff. They're very experienced at this sort of thing. And then eventually they come lowering down the cliff. Oh, they had climbers climbing up from the bottom too. Oh, and there was another party. There was another party in the canyon. That's that. I forgot about that. They were climbing, um, touch and go, a route that was pretty much right underneath us. Because I remember uh, when the when the rescuers got there, they asked those climbers at one point, "Can I jug up your line?" So. A cup. Tom at this point was almost was about, only about two and a half pitches off the ground, and so they a couple of climbers climbed up from below, and they were the first ones to get to Tom. Did they do anything when they got up to Tom, in terms of uh, wilderness medicine? Yeah, I I don't know the whole procedure, but these guys are EMTs and stuff like that. They eventually get a doctor to him because they're the doc. The doctors are climbers as well, but they're not. The doctors aren't there at this point, but. Um, when they got to Tom, yeah, he was extremely disoriented and agitated. And I guess that's normal for someone who's had this type of traumatic brain injury. Um, I didn't see him until I got lowered off the wall. I got off the wall before Tom did because the litter comes in from the top. And then once I got down to Tom, they, the litter stops and I wrapped off the fixed lines that these other guys had already come up and placed. And when I saw Tom, you know, he looked like somebody had punched him in both of his eyes. I guess when you, he stopped, you, it's quite a violent stopping, even though with the rope pulling, but his eyes go forward so hard that it gives him a bunch of black eyes. He looked like a raccoon. He was not all there. Yep. Did he recognize you when you, uh, when you came down to him? No, no. How did that make you feel? I was, I was, I was pretty concerned. I was pretty emotional. You know, I wasn't uh, breaking down or anything, but you know, I, I had some pretty strong feelings for how he was doing, and I knew it was serious. But he was most, you know, he was in one piece. He actually didn't break that many bones. He broke his finger. I think he had a broken rib. Um, smashed his elbow, but. But mostly it was his head, and so he, he looked relatively okay, and he was awake. So, I mean, that, that was encouraging, but I knew he wasn't, he wasn't in good shape right now. And I didn't want, you know, my mind wasn't racing or anything, thinking he was going to be a vegetable or anything like that. But, you know, I'm pretty concerned. You see all these medical people around him, um, and he's in trouble. He's, he's awake but he can't tolerate any noise, any, any light. He's just sort of, yeah, like that. And he was like that for like three or four days where he really could, 
couldn't speak much and just he just was sort of inside of himself you know like he had i don't know i don't know what it was like like he had a massive migraine he couldn't talk he couldn't open his eyes he couldn't stand any sort of noise how long was he in the hospital for i think he was just in the hospital for for less than a week maybe even four or five days before he was moved to a recovery center. I don't even know what you call it, but where they basically teach him how to function again, you know, how to talk, how to write, uh, all those sort of things. And did he lose all those motor functions? Oh, somewhat, somewhat. He got them all back a hundred percent. Wow. And in fact, he's a, he's a computer programmer. So there was definitely concern immediately that he wouldn't be able to do his job again, that he would never fully recover that kind of mental capacity. Um, and that, that was the case for at least a month or more. Um, but he's come back 100%, still works the same, same company, same job, um, still climbs real hard, climbs a bunch. Well, that's good news. <laughs> yeah. Very good news. So, Bill, what were a few learnings that came out of this that we can tell our listeners? I was thinking about that today. And there isn't a lot that we could have done differently for this goal. But so the real learning thing for, for people, I think, is don't do this. Really, don't do this. It's, it's very, very dangerous. Um, even when you practice these routes so much... Simul climbing for 16 hours, although we had only done it at this time for three plus hours, um, it's just dangerous and you cannot really self rescue. Um, so we were doing this in Eldo. So it's, it's a pretty popular place. It's close to, to help. Now, of course we didn't expect to be, need to be rescued, but I wouldn't have tried something this radical in the backcountry where there's no chance of being rescued, although we didn't even enter our mind that we'd ever need to be rescued. That wasn't anything we discussed. But some of the takeaways are, if you, that I think are really relevant are that um, easy ground can be considerably more dangerous than hard ground. Because when the climbing is hard, you're very focused, you're putting in lots of gear because it's hard. You might fall off. And it's probably, yeah, and it's probably more steep. Yes, that's true. But, um, yeah, that's very true as well. Um, but then when it's easy ground, you think, oh, it's easy. I can just race on up this thing. And we did need to space, space the gear out to meet our goal. We did need to space the gear out greatly. But I think the takeaway really is that, is that, you need to be aware of where you are. And he was, cause I think what happened to him was a freak hold breaking. I climbed it later with a buddy and I did find a fresh rocks car up there. The takeaway is that, is that when you're way above gear, um, especially on terrain, that's not, you know, super steep. Um, you need to really be focused. You need to really pay attention of the, the consequences. That's all consequences of falling. And that's really, what lead climbing is all about. I, I'm teaching my son to be a trad lead climber now. And 
constantly talking about this. You're constantly evaluating risk as you're leading a climb. You know, how far I am above my last piece of gear. How good is that piece of gear? What are the consequences of a fall? Will I hit that ledge? All these things you're just constantly doing. Every, every foot you climb, you're just recalculating, recalculating what the risks are. But you really need to be more careful about that, I think, on easy ground when you're so high above your gear that you're really in the, a death fall range or soloing range. So you need to have that mindset um, on easy ground. You're soloing at this point. You cannot fall. And, and be ultra careful. Be ultra careful. Okay, well, thank you so much, Bill Wright, for being on The Sharp End today and sharing your incredible personal experience and knowledge with the climbing community. Thank you to all the listeners. Please make sure you go to iTunes and leave me a review. And as soon as this podcast ends, you should check out The Fern Line by Evan Phillips. It's my favorite podcast. This episode is sponsored by Mammut. Vertical Medicine Resources and the Colorado Outward Bound School. Vertical Medicine Resources is an innovative climbing medicine company. Check out their new book titled Vertical Aid, Essential Wilderness Medicine for Climbers, Trekkers, and Mountaineers. The Colorado Outward Bound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years, offering wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range from 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 through adult and include backpacking, mountaineering, rafting, canyoneering, and rock climbing. Visit cobs.org to plan your next adventure. Thank you to Accidents and North American Climbing, in which this podcast is based on. Get your copy of the new 2017 edition of Accidents at shop at americanalpineclub.org or at your local outdoor store. If you're a member with the AAC, you should be receiving your copy of the book in the mail any day now, if you haven't already. And if there's a story in that newest edition that you'd love to hear on this show, send me an email at accidents at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Until next time, play hard and be smart.